0: Thank you so much for being here tonight and coming and and, share, and sharing with us about all the things of our lord listen, we are in i know I say this too much i, I don 't know what to do i don 't know what to do i 've got to be honest i think it 's because you afford me the opportunity to study and when you study a pers- a place in scripture, all of a sudden it becomes more and more and more alive and and this this place where we are in scripture is it 's critical for you and me to understand. Who we are in Christ. Paul is setting a tone. And he's setting a tone for a group of people he's never met. He's writing to these people in Rome. He's going to be there. He longs to be there with them. But he's setting a tone for them so that they might understand who they are. Now, if you know, you've been with us for any length of time, he set a tone that, that, that takes everyone down to the bare, bare minimum of who they are. He had set a tone so that they, they were laying kind of flat on the ground with nowhere to look but up. Do you remember in chapter 1, verses 18 to 32... He told those people who, who denied the existence of God, those who just, they knew better, but, but, but they, they said no to God. They said absolutely no way. In fact, look, let's, let's review because reviewing this tells us exactly why Paul is going to say what he says starting here in chapter 3 and verse 9. Look at chapter 1. You remember it, I'm I'm sure. In verse 18, where he started talking against those who who were ungodly. He says, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness, all unrighteousness of men. Those who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. These are the people who denied the very existence of God. But he says, that which was known about God, verse 19, was evident within you. God made it evident to you. In other words, you can deny it all you want. He is saying, you can say there's no God. I, I'm not sure there's a God. But he's saying, no, 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 that's not fair because God made himself evident to you. Look, verse 20, "For since the creation of this world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, his his divine nature have been clearly seen." Therefore, he says to them, "You have no excuse." No excuse whatsoever. And we, we studied that place in Scripture. It's a, it is kind of a, a terrible place because three times God says to them He gave them over to their sin. Then He comes in chapter 2 to those who are the, the self-righteous, those who look down on those in chapter 1 and said they deserve God's wrath. They're, they're, they're despicable people, but not us. We do good things. Look, as a matter of fact, it says verse 6 of chapter 2 God's going to render to every man according to his deeds. And Paul is teaching that their deeds are are absolutely worthless apart from faith in Christ. And so what does he say to these people who who look down upon those in chapter 1? Look at verse 1 of chapter 2. He says, therefore, you too, you're without excuse, every one of you. Now he's come to where we've studied in chapter 3, actually the last part of chapter 2 and then chapter 3, to the Jewish mindset. He's come to those who, who believe that their heritage, who believe that their traditions, who believe that the covenant that they have with God and God with them is enough to enter them into the very presence of God, into the kingdom of God. Regardless of how they live, they, they feel because of who they are, they have the right to be with God. And this is where we left off last week. He talked to those in chapter 1. He talked to those in chapter 2. And now he is saying to those, the Jewish people in chapter 3 and verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Note Paul in, includes himself. Another, he is a Jew as well. Are we as Jews better than all the rest because of circumcision and, and, and the, the traditions that we have within, within our faith? No, he says in verse 9, not at all. Not at all. Because he says we have already charged that both Jew as well as Greek or Gentile, all are under sin. See, that's what Paul is doing. He's stripping us naked to where it gets to the place where the Jew would say, well then... What do we do? What hope have we? Where can we turn? And and that's exactly where Paul wants us. That's where he wants you and me. That's where I honestly want all of us to find ourselves, to a place that we feel so naked, so undeserving, that the only place we can look is up. And when we look up, we see our Savior who is... Who is willing to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness that's what Paul is doing and he's doing it magnificently magnificently well today what he does is he really not, not only strips us naked but he really allows us to see that that we are totally depraved in other words we are corrupt we are evil we are wicked we are immoral We are without hope, without Christ. And that's what Anthony said a little while ago. I heard him when he was introducing the song. He's saying, you know, that that, uh, he was lost apart from Jesus Christ. So I want you to read some of the most harshest words that you'll ever read in Scripture. Paul is writing to the people in Rome, but actually he's writing to you and me. He's writing to this whole world. I intended to read through and study all the way from verse 9 to verse 18, but it is literally impossible, and, and I think you'll thank me in the end. We're going to take it in parts. Read with me first verses 9 through 12. Paul divides this section into three parts, and you'll see. Verse 9, what then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Father, with that in mind, where do we turn? If there is none of us who is righteous, not even one, if there is none of us who understand, none of us who seek for God, what do we do? Paul has the answers. You gave them to you gave the answers to him, and and he is writing them to us. And Father, it is our desire to understand you more than anything else on the face of this earth. This is what I honestly live for, Lord, to try to teach this message so clearly that all of us would comprehend and understand. All who come into these, these doors and walk into this church. And so, Father, for us to understand everything that you want to, to, to reveal to us, may, may you please move me aside. Let me not hinder what you want to say to each of us tonight. And as I pray every week, Father, almost every week, I believe, in Psalms 119, it's, it says, open up our eyes so that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Father, we give you this, this service. We ask that you will take it and, and use it, Father, for your glory within our lives. Bless us, please, Father. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Kind of a... a that's a couple of words that, that are tough. It's it, total depravity. What in the world does that mean? It, to boil it down, simply it means that sin affects every part of the human existence. It has since the garden. It always will. It affects our minds. It, it affects our will. It affects our bodies. Every dimension of our personalities that suffers at some point or another. It suffers from the very weight of sin which has infected the human race. It originated way back in the garden with Adam and Eve, the very first act of disobedience. God said to them, you can eat from all the trees in the garden, you two. The the one tree in the middle of the garden, that tree you shall not eat of it. And the day you eat of it, you shall what? You'll surely die. Now, they didn't die physically. They died spiritually. And this is what Paul is trying to clearly explained in these verses, verses 9 through 18. He refers to Jew as well as to the Gentiles. In other words, every single person is affected. Look again at verse 9 closely. Let then, are we, Paul includes himself, are we better than they? No, not at all, he says. Because we've already charged you that both Jew and Greek, Jew and Gentile, we are all under sin. All of us. So Paul warns that to the Jewish mindset the, 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 the covenant that you have with God, the circumcision that, that you have isn't a circumcision that comes outwardly in the flesh but rather it comes from within. It comes from within your heart. That's, that's what needs to be changed. So the conclusion eventually you know, in- inevitably follows Chapters 1, 2, and 3 with verse 9. We are all under sin. I want you to note something. We can't go too quickly. Look. Look what Paul says. It's very important about this place. Paul does not say that both Jew and Greek are sinners. No, he has already said they are all sinners in chapters 1, 2, and 3. Paul does say this though. Both Jew and Greek are all sinners under sin. That's very important. Being under suggests the idea of being weighed down. It it, it suggests the idea of being crushed, just the burden, the heaviness of sin. See, it's only when a person comes to the cross for true salvation in Jesus Christ, allowing the blood of Christ to roll the burden of sin off of our backs so that the weight that we are under can be removed. It's the only way that God has given us. Being under the guilt of sin can drive people to terrible things. Alcohol, drugs, despair, insanity for some, to some even to the extent of... Suicide. And we play the game of blaming. We blame our environment. We blame other people. We blame our situation. We blame our society. We blame money. Either we have too much, and that's a burden, like to have it, or we have too little. That's a burden too. And so we have this feeling of guilt. And people want to get rid of this guilty feeling that they have in this world in which we live today and some spend thousands of dollars in therapy trying to figure out what why it is that their mother overburdened them and now they feel like they you know and more people probe for solutions and often they end up feeling more guilty when they started out. Why? Well I'll tell you why it's simple. Mankind feels guilty because mankind is guilty. That's the bottom line. That's what Paul is saying. The guilt feeling is only a warning signal of the real problem, which is S-I-N, sin. Sin's the issue. I've come to to believe that, that guilt is God's call upon people's hearts. I, I, thought, and I thought when I came to Christ, I thought that I had it pretty much figured out. I, I knew, and I've said this to you before, I, I, I said that my, my finest trait as a human being before I came to Christ was that nobody had to convince me that I was a sinner. I didn't have to be drug through that whole issue, that I'm better than most. I didn't feel that about myself. And I came to Christ because I did not want to go to hell. That's the truth. But what I've, I'm starting to believe is that the guilt that I had of knowing that if I were to die, I would go to hell, that was God calling me, saying, I, I love you, I want you, I, I want you to be one of my children I think guilt is God's call to repent. Which is why, by the way, Jesus Christ represents and presents the gospel first. And the gospel confronts mankind with the reality of their sin. You know that, don't you? The gospel means the good news. The good news is that the Bible offers the way of salvation from sin. And listen now. Until a person is confronted until a person is convicted of their sin, until a a person repents from their sin, then the gospel has nothing more to offer them. Until we come to the realization that we are sinners in need of a Savior, there is nothing more that that the gospel, the good news of Christ, can offer to a person. The gospel, therefore, begins by declaring that all folks are sinful, totally depraved. And that the greatest need in our lives as human beings is to have our sins removed. How? Through the trust and belief and faith in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who came to earth to die for our sins, to forgive us of our sins, and to take the guilt that we are under away from us. That's why that's why the Bible says, and I've said it to you often, and I say it to you for a reason. When you ask the Lord for forgiveness, He takes your sin and removes it as far as what? The east is from the west. I guess, what well, it doesn't matter. As far as the east is from the west. And then He says, I'll take that sin that you confessed to me and I will remember it how long? No more. He wants to take that burden off of us so that we're free. This is a a marvelous place in Scripture. And you'll never really truly understand how marvelous it is until you see what Paul is trying to say to us, until he he weighs us down with this issue of we are totally depraved. What, What hope do I have? And we're laying on the ground and we say, what can I do? And we look up and... And hopefully all we see is the cross. That's what Paul, look, look what Paul's going to say after a little while, after he gets through with this whole idea of, of there's none righteous, no, not one and all that. Look at verse 22 of chapter 3. He says, the righteousness of God comes through faith in Christ Jesus for all who believe. There. There is no distinction. In other words, Paul's saying we're all, we're all available. We can all come to the cross. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. Faith in Christ has set you free. There's no distinction with God. He wants to save every single soul of us if, if we'll come to Him. And so the gospel is, is critical now, because of, of, of where we are, this guilt that we are under causes Paul to write these words to everyone, by the way, in verses 10 and 11. Look, there is none righteous. How many? No, not even one. None. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. John reassures this thought in 1st John chapter 5 verse 19 he says the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You know people who think they're they're self-righteous tend to think themselves as being inherently better than the other person or the next person. That's what that's what the chapter 2 is all about chapter 1. We're better than them. No you're not he says. We're all on the same boat. And people who are self-righteous think they are inherently better, but they're not. That's why here at this church, I, I love the, the thought of, at least you have a pastor. At least you have someone here that thinks that just because someone's behind this, this, this what is it, a podium? I don't know. That thing? That, 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 that he's better than the rest of us? Is it, that, that's so far from true. We are all in the same We're all in this together. It's just that God has given each of us different gifts. That's all. And because he's given somebody the gift to preach, does it mean that that he's better than, 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 than another person who has the gift of helps? No, we're in this all together. And we can't think that we're inherently better than the other person because there is none of us who is righteous. Not one. None of us seek after God not one. And so that a person becomes right before God is never because they are inherently better than the next person. Not at all. It's only because you and I have, and I believe I know all of you, I almost feel like I know all of you by sight at least, we have acknowledged our sin and we have come in humble faith before Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sin. But it doesn't make any of us better than the next person. Verses 10 and 11 are some of the most radical indictments of of human beings that has ever been put in print. Verse 11 says, There is none of us who understands. You want to ask the question, Understand what, Paul? What don't we understand? Well he's talking about righteousness. If you look at verse 10, he says, There is none righteous, not even one. And there's none who understands. We don't understand the righteousness. If we don't understand righteousness, then what would be the consequence? Paul says for certain at the end of verse 11, Therefore you wouldn't even seek after God. None of us would. In verses 10 through 18, Paul uses the term none and not even one six times to refer to man's absolute lack of righteousness before God. And Paul says in verse 10, using these three words to start it all off, it is written. Now that's very important. It is written as in the Greek perfect tense. It indicates that there is a link between what was written before and what is being said now. And it implies the divine authority of this, God's Word. Let me show you how I know this to be true. Remember the famous scene where Jesus Christ fasted for 40 days and 40 nights? Remember? Remember? And then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the evil one, remember? And what did the evil one want to do? He wanted to tempt him to make him be disobedient to his call on this earth before God and to follow what Satan wanted him to do. And so he says, I'll give you food to eat, all that you want. And Jesus says, "Uh uh-uh. No, no, Satan. Jesus answered and says, this is in Matthew chapter 4. You might want to look at it sometime. Matthew 4 from verses 4 through 10. Both of them, Satan as well as our Lord, says, quote, it is written. But our our Lord Jesus says, it is written, Satan, that man shall not live on bread alone, but man shall live out of every word that proceedeth forth from the word of God. That's what we live on. That's what it says when it says it is written. And, And Satan wanted to say, you want to play that game? I can do it. I can tell you it is written too. It is written is a term that implies divine authority. And Paul seems to be saying here in Romans chapter 3 in verse 10, It is written, no one in his natural condition seeks after God. Look again at verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, As it is written, none there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. Let's turn that upside down and try to make some sense out of it a little bit more. If no one seeks for God, then they will never understand who God is. And if they ever, never understand who God is, then they will never come to a real understanding of righteousness. You see, the righteousness that you have flowing through your veins once you come to Christ is not your own righteousness. You've been given the righteousness of Christ. When God looks upon you, He doesn't see anything of you. He sees His Son living in you. And you are saved by the righteousness of an almighty Savior, Jesus Christ. We don't even understand what true righteousness is all about. So what's the result? If that's the truth... Note verse 12. Therefore we have all turned aside. Together we have become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. Verses 10, 11, and 12 show us the character of man in his fallen nature. And it affects our character. Therefore, let me break it down for you. In verse 10, the last part of it, mankind are universally evil. By that it says there is none who is righteous, not even one on this whole world, no one. Psalms 14:1 says the fool has said in his heart there is no God and it says they have we have committed we are corrupt, we have committed abdominal deeds and there is no one who does good the Old Testament says. We are not only universally evil, but in verse 11, the first part of verse 11, mankind is also spiritually ignorant. There is none, it says, who understands. Psalms 53, 3 says, every one of them, God speaking from heaven, every one of them is turned aside. Together they are corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. We are not only universally evil, we are not only spiritually ignorant, but we are rebellious. Verse 11, the last part, there is none who seeks after God. Psalms 14:2 says, the Lord looked down from heaven upon the sons of mankind to see if there was anyone who understands, if there was anyone who seeks after him. The answer is no, no. I want you to listen to this so before we go deeper into this. God has given you and me the absolute assurance that anyone who seeks after Him with all of his heart will find them. Jeremiah 29 13 tells us clearly you will seek for me and you will find me when you search for me with all of your heart. That's why I ask all of us to be serious about our faith. Jesus offers this divine promise in Matthew chapter 7 verse 8. He says, everyone who sincerely asks of me will receive. He says, everyone who sincerely seeks me will find me. And everyone who sincerely knocks will have, knocks upon the door of heaven will have it open to him. Listen to what he says, Matthew 7 8. Everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks it will be opened. But in this Paul presents a problem And it is this, that the Lord knows that mankind is sinful. Our inclination is not to seek after Him. And so He therefore draws us to Himself out of His love for us. What's the example? Let me show you how Scripture is so wonderful to study. Uh, So many of us have have read the the, the account in Genesis of, of Adam and Eve. But now let's read it with this in mind. The whole idea of how sin separates us from God. Why God said to Adam and to Eve, If you eat from this tree in the middle of the garden, you shall surely die. Right after Adam and Eve sinned, in other words, disobeyed God, I want to take you to the scene in Genesis chapter 3. I want you to read it with me, listen to it and see it from this perspective now. It says in Genesis 3, verse 7, after they had eaten from that fruit, disobeyed God, it says, then the eyes of both of them were opened. They knew that they were naked, and so they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loin coverings. They had been naked all along. Why all of a sudden now do they know that they're naked? Well, that's what sin does. Sin makes us look upon ourselves. I want what I want, what I want it. I use this often in, in talking to couples that are about to be married, you know. The greatest greatest thing you can do in your marriage is to take your eyes off of yourself and humbly care for your wife or your husband. It says then they both of them, their eyes were open. They knew they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together. Verse 8. And then all of a sudden they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife did something. What did they do? They what? They hid from God. Why? They hid from God the very one who gave them everything to supply, everything that they ever needed, the one who walked with them hand in hand in the garden, the one who was, was just everything to them, all of a sudden they find themselves hiding from God. It says in verse 9, Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? I mean, the Lord knew. Where are you? God searched them out. And Adam said, I heard the sound of of you in the garden and I was afraid. I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. He hid from God. Why? Because the weight of the sin on his shoulders... He, he lost that pure, wonderful relationship with God. So God comes and searches him out. Asks him where is he. He knew exactly where he was. And then he asked him this. He said, who told you you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you not to eat from? God just basically wanted him to confess. To own up what he had done wrong so he could forgive him. What did the man do? <laughs> he blamed the woman perfect don't we always and so when he asked her she blamed the serpent you see god had god had to search them out or they would have hidden from him from that day forward why because of the guilt they felt they were under 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 that burden that weight of sin and that took them away from god Let's, let's look at it even deeper than that today in the society in which we live. I want you to listen to this, please. All man-made religions, all cults, are demon-inspired efforts to make or to cause an escape from God so as not to find the truth of who Jesus Christ is. You boil down all man-made religions. They, they tell you all things that you have to do. There are traditions with the church that you have to do. Or you have to belong to this church to be right with God. Or you have to do this, that, or the other. Or they diminish the very deity of Jesus Christ. Say that, well, yeah, He's a God, but He isn't God, a very God. It's what they do. They try to escape from the very truth of who God is. And every person who comes to Jesus Christ for salvation has been sent to Jesus Christ through the divine initiative of God the Father. You ought to be so proud of the fact that God has called you to His Son. How do I know that? Listen to what Jesus Christ teaches in John chapter 6, verses 37 to 44. Jesus says clearly, you cannot mistake it, He says, no one, no one, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. Therefore, the only person who seeks God is the person who has responded positively to God seeking Him. And I believe, I I honestly believe that guilt is part of God calling you away from your lifestyle to follow after Him and to remove the weight of sin that you are under. So we see so far from verses 10, 11, and 12, mankind is universally evil, spiritually ignorant, rebellious, they are also wayward. Verse 12a, all, all, all have turned aside from God. The word turned aside is is the perfect word for this. It is E-K-K-L-I-N-O. It has the basic meaning of leaning in the wrong direction. The reference is like to a soldier or, or someone who is running the wrong way. In other words, deserting the battle. That's why I often to absolutely love soldiers, um, policemen and women, firefighters. Back in, in 9-11, any of us that were watching on TV would Saw people just running, running, running away from the Twin Towers. And who could play? I would have been right with them. Running as fast as my little legs could carry me. But if you watched closely, there was a group of men and women who were running towards the Twin Towers. They were running to the battle, not away from it. I studied this all week and I... We were driving home, my wife and I, from watching our, our, one of our grandsons play a, a flag football game. And when we got near our home, there was a police officer that pulled up alongside of us on a motorcycle. And I wanted to say something to him. It wasn't appropriate at the time because he was over a little bit. I, I was really thinking, I would, boy, I would love to be able to say something to him. And sure enough, we came to a stoplight. We both stopped. And I, I rolled down the window. Kale okay, verify this is true. I rolled down the window and I whistled real loud. <laughs> And he looked at me and he went, oh, man, what's this old, what does this old guy want? And I yelled, thank you so much for making this place safer for us to live in. And I saw and Kay saw the sweetest smile of a young man that just simply said, thank you, sir. Thank you. Um, It says here we have become wayward. All of us have turned aside. In other words, we... Wrong. We run in the wrong direction. That's why, that's why the word repent, when we come to Christ, is critical. You know what the word repent means, do you not? Repent means you're going in this direction, away from God, and the Bible says repent. That means to turn and go in the other direction towards Him. Repent. Go towards God. Don't become wayward. Isaiah chapter 53 verse 6 says, All of us are like sheep who have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. So we become wayward, but we also become spiritually useless. That's that's a tough one. Verse 12b, it says, Together all of us, all fallen mankind have become, it says, useless. The Hebrew, Hebrew equivalent to that Greek word useless is used to describe milk that has turned so sour that you can't drink it. It's become unfit for food. You see, apart from the saving relationship of Jesus Christ, a person is spiritually dead, totally unable to produce any fruit. Our lives, apart from Christ, are worthless, useless, the Bible says. Finally, The last part of verse 12, mankind has become morally corrupt. It says, there is none who does good, not even one. Does good is a Greek word, C-H-R-E-S-T-O-T-E-S. It refers to that which is morally upright and acceptable. When we are measured by God's perfect standard of righteousness, then the natural man, the unbeliever, has absolutely no ability to do anything upright or good. But as I close, and we are early, which is kind of good, it's kind of good. Because I, wanna, I want you to kind of sit here for a moment and think with me. You my brothers and my sisters in Christ, you are an amazing human being you have the power of God flowing through your veins. God has so gifted you and me to do whatever it is that He has called us to do. The beauty of who we are is that we have recognized the fact that we are sinners. And we are in desperate need of a Savior. And once we come to that Savior, then we are a child of God. We are forget, forever forgiven. We are forever useful for Him. The reason Paul lays this out before us is so that we would see exactly how wretched we are so that when we look up, we, we recognize, I have nothing to offer God. And that's what Paul's going to teach real soon. He's going to say, yeah, you have nothing. He's done it all for you. He has given you the opportunity to come to Him by faith. It's the most beautiful place to be. That's why we have to understand our Bibles. That's why we have to study. That's why it's it's imperative when we come to church that we just don't play church, but we really find out what is it that's written in here that can set us free. My dearest friend, Kenny Hutchison teaches always, and I've heard him say it more than a few times, Says a person that reads the Bible and starts feeling good about himself has absolutely no understanding of what he's just read. <laughs> he uh, we'll have to get him back here again soon. He says that um, well, what I'm saying. When you read the Bible, you understand that you are, you are hopeless apart from Christ. And so even the things that we do now as believers in Jesus Christ is not because of, of us being so doggone special. It's because He does great things through us. At least He wants to. And that's what I want for us as a body of believers. More than anything, I want for you to understand who you are in Christ. I want you to let that burden, that weight, that maybe you feel from time to time be taken off of your shoulders. He has forgiven you. He has forgiven you. He has taken your sin and removed it as far as the east is from the west. This book, Romans, is going to t- teach about grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. Grace is, He's not only forgiven you what you've done, He's forgiven you of what you're going to do. And when that, you try to understand that principle with how wretched we are, it's, it's, it's hard to, to comprehend. But what our Lord is trying to do is take this burden off of your shoulders. Let Him carry it. Let him carry it. Now, I, I recognize I'm not a, a great example to be telling you this. as I worry over everything. Everything. And when I come to my senses, when my wife finally teaches me more about the Word, I become more trusting in God. That's what I want you to be. It's a great way to live. It really is. Well, while you're praying tonight, <coughs> you can pray for Dan. Dan had a... Um, Pastor Dan had a uh, kind of a uh, episode with his heart uh, yesterday and, and they had to take him, to, uh, rush him to emergency. And is it okay? I t- no, it's too late now. <laughs> uh, and had to paddle him to so get his heart kind of beating normally again. So um, uh, so just pray for him. He's fine. He's just a little bit tired tonight. So he didn't want to be here and, so that he can put in a full week next week, he said. Um, If I hadn't told you often enough, can I tell you with all my heart I love you? Coming here on a Sunday night like this means a lot to to, uh, me. Um, I will forever be indebted to you. Forever and ever be indebted to you. Allowing us to have church like this. We had really a nice attendance yesterday as well, by the way. Uh, There's people coming on Saturday night. Oh, no thanks. I I didn't say that for that. But yeah, there's... uh, we, we, you know things are are kind of holding together. so Father, would you please bless us? Please watch over Dan and um, uh, allow that uh, that afib that he has with his heart to get better, please, Lord. Um, also take care of uh, each of us, Father. Uh, wherever you might take us tonight, may we honor you by living a life that represents who we are because of what you've done for us. Let us recognize how how much you love us. I mean, you gave your only begotten Son so that we might have everlasting life and then you draw us to Him so that we would trust and believe in Him. How gracious of you, Father. Father. So bless us, please. Watch over us, please. And thank you for what you've done in our midst through this church and through the dear people who come. In Jesus' precious name, amen.